Blog Talk Radio. Every 13,000 years. 
So this is the time when we learn everything. You know, I don't know if it's a short time and then we start forgetting it again or whatever, but this is that time. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a episode of End Time Tribune Media. Matthew, do I got you on board here? You certainly do, Brian. You certainly do. All right, why don't you jump in first, because uh, you brought something up in the background, and I'm curious to uh, get your take on this, because I understand what you're getting at here. So I think it's rather interesting you bring that in. Well, when we speak biblically... <clears throat> It is very difficult to try to determine what the Lord, our God, is actually talking about as far as people groups and the table of nations. That's difficult enough in of itself. But when we speak biblically and when we are talking prophetically and we're looking for prophetic information, the first part turns out to be the more simpler of the two tasks. So when we come to grips with Daniel's prophecy of the the goat, the ram, the princes involved, all the dynamics, we realize that as we spoke just the other day, we pointed out that the Prince Asher is over control of a vast swath that has been divided and appropriately conquered for the minds of the Ecclesia, the faithful of God's church. So, as teachers, when we try to teach about the Prince of Persia, if we don't go the extra step to define his boundaries, everyone gets confused. Everybody needs to realize that what is Asher over? Well, ladies and gentlemen, there is a mountain range that is his northern border. And of course, the two rivers run through it. You have to realize when you get out a map, uh, that's why Brian and I have talked so much about uh, Georgia, we're talking uh, about Armenia, we talk about Turkey, we talk about Syria and Iraq, because that is, that does encompass all this territory. But when you bring up a map, you must look at it geologically. People don't realize that. They think uh, for modern teaching, as I was just doing a bit of research here, well, the teacher's that I saw, as far as the American uh, academia is concerned, has it completely wrong. <laughs> they don't want you to know that. So when the Bible talks about 
topics like this and you want to try to talk to someone about the particular ram with two horns, where's that at? What what did it encompass? Where is it going? Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have to realize that the Prince of Persia is exactly the same. He controls a vast swath of territory. And yes, it has been divided into separate states by foreign entities. So when a scholar wants to study about the Prince of Persia, oh my goodness, you're going to fall into a literal black hole of disinformation from institutions of higher learning. So we're going to come to grips tonight with this rhyme with the two horns. Where does his influence extend over? And you know, there's a very interesting thing in the Bible when you know what goes on in the geographical location. As I told you, that's what you should look for. You should look for hints and signs in the Bible because, well, that's where you're going to get the information from. And when you look at it, geologically speaking, you need to first realize what that means. It means mountain ranges. It means waterways. But more importantly, it means the mineral wealth. Just like you heard Brian and I do massive research on that. And really, uh, one of the keys to the entire puzzle was... Well, the lapis lazuli, as in some Bible translations. Guess what? Brian looked, found those mines. No question about it. What the Bible was talking about was right there. So with that in mind, Brian, we've got a lot of work to do, and you have just done a massive amount of research here. Um, and we have to realize that there is another two sets of princes that lies even further to the east than Persia, which we may eventually have to look at. But when it comes to what is going on on the ground right now, we've already shown that Asher is already at play because everything that goes on with the oil, where Israel gets its oil from, all three pipelines that supply Europe with most of its oil because there is one pipeline that goes over around the top of the Caspian Sea all go through the land of Asher. Now that we have had a missile barrage inbound to the beautiful land from the Iranian military, that tells you that a beast has been formed. The prince of Persia was given permission to launch an attack against a beautiful land from Asher's territory. With that in mind, right now, this information is critical. We need to know where Asher's boundaries are. This is critically important because most of the play is going to be done in the areas that you don't realize is the prince of Persia's. They're going to bring all of their resources to bear. And confusion is weapon number one. That's the best thing they have in their arsenal 
to confuse the bride of Christ. So, Brian, with that in mind, I hope everybody realizes the critical importance it is that we think geologically. The mineral deposits, what does the Bible talk about? The waterways, where are they at? The table of nations, can we get to that genetic data? Can we figure out who, what, where, when, why? Because the Bible is not wasting God's breath. He told us these clues for a reason, and they are important. Well, and to factor into that as well, folks, you know, you have to add in, just like Matthew brought up, to get key details geologically. The other major thing here is everybody, geography itself. You know, one of the vast things that brings in so much confusion to people is basically the changing of names of various places. Now, for instance, I've seen this come up in discussions that, um, for instance, David Rhodes had with people where they've confused Saudi Arabia with what the words meant in ancient times where it was Arabia. So they therefore take a verse in the New Testament to confuse it with modern-day Saudi Arabia. That's completely throws things into disarray. And, you know, folks, if you don't understand that we've had borders changes, massive renaming of places, um, you know, it even got more prominent when you get into World War One, And as the Versailles Treaty comes along and they start dividing all the Middle East up, the Sykes-Picot Agreement with uh, where they divided up the Ottoman Empire and parcel out. I mean, every corner of these places they gave to, you know, between... The victors, essentially, between Britain, uh, France, the United States, and even at that time, since Russia was still, to a degree, an ally before everything really went south with the Bolshevik Revolution and all that, they were also included in the original dealings, which they later stopped. Now, you know, to give the most infamous one is, you know, the land of Israel, they will still, some maps still try to call it Palestine taking it from the Ottoman Empire, and obviously when you still have the major disputes, which we're seeing break out in just an unbelievable form over the course of the last few days here, as far as with the embassy being moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, there's just been between about 50 deaths, I believe, from the day the embassy was moved, and I have not yet been able to go through and look at all what happened last night into, you know, into the mid-afternoon, obviously, because we have a difference in variable in our timeline. But things were getting very heated. I don't know what happened there yet. I still have to look. But, I mean, this is to give everybody an example and an idea of, you know, a gist if we look at modern-day you can tend to get confused. You know, the biggest one right now to really focus on is, for instance, when uh, Pakistan broke away from India. Now, there's reasons that they did this. And some of the reasoning actually is going to draw you back into the ancient people that inhabited that area from what was known as the Indus Valley Civilization. Now, everybody's probably heard of the Harappan Civilization 
Mo Hingendaro, and all of that. It was known full well that that civilization was running at the same time as the Sumerian civilization, at the same time as the uh, civilization of Elam, at the same time as the Bactral Margiana complex, which is that entire string of civilizations that's running along the Oxus River, which obviously this is where we get into the history of Alexander the Great that really starts breaking things down. And, you know, as history goes forward, languages are developing, and all of a sudden these ideas start getting solidified more as the various languages, the various groups start getting in close proximity of one another. And then, of course, you end up bringing in the infamous debates going on nowadays with the uh, the Proto-Indo-European language family because they realize that there's a connection between, obviously, the Sanskrit in India. You go over to the Persian language. Then you start finding out the Greek is connected. You find out that Chinese is even connected now at this point with the Asian languages. And this just keeps spreading all the way through varied areas. But here's the thing is something that Matthew and I discussed deeply last night is we get into a bit of confusion if we just keep this to uh, the terminology of Indo-European and bring that into just being the European people. Because as we begin to look at this terminology that, you know, for one, it's almost a taboo topic to agree, it was especially during World War II because of what Hitler did and his fixation on finding the Aryan race. And, you know, he tied this into the grouping of people that, literally speaking, is going to take you to Ashkenaz as being the um, Ashkenazi of the Assyrians, the Ishguzi, which literally breaks down to the Saka branch of the Scythian tribes that were in Central Asia. Now, they can take it to that branch to a degree. But we have a major branch, especially when you get to the time of Darius the Great. On the Bison inscription, he refers to being an Aryan from Arya. And at first, when we looked at that inscription a couple of years back, um, when we did a Kingdom Divided Against Itself on the Bands of Time YouTube channel, you know, we had that question, well, where is this Arya? And over the course of time, as I did that work on Eden, lo and behold, we located that place, which is in modern-day Afghanistan. And, you know, of course, as more work progressed and went on, as I was going through this information, looking at the Oxus River, which is in the Arabic tongue, it's called the Gahan, which means the crazy river. This is all tied into the pathways of Alexander the Great. Why is that important? Again, because as I've stated before, if we're going to understand what's going on here in God's holy word, especially when you go into Daniel 8, you have to understand that history that goes in with Alexander the Great. And at the same time, one of the most frustrating and even puzzling portions of history to try to get to the bottom of is the history of the Persian the media Persian Empire. Because of the fact that you're drawing from a multitude of varied uh, Greek texts, it ends up throwing in just severe confusion because you've got a lot of uh, contradictions between texts 
you know, and they've come to find out that as far as Herodotus is concerned, he was the least biased in the equation. So you're able to pull a lot more material from the things that he says, because when you consider the fact that the Greek empires were in war with the Persians, you start getting that bias. Like if you were, you know, a prime example, for instance, is if we're to take modern day America and say, look at how Russia comes up in our media and let's say this take it back thousands of years and all of a sudden our newspapers and everything is all that's being found. Well, you're going to have a different picture of Russia than opposed to, let's say, if you were sitting in Russia and their texts survived instead. So I'm hoping I'm explaining this in a way that makes sense. Now, as the archaeological data has come forward progressively more so over time here, a complete picture is coming together, but not to even mention a completely different picture than what was first assumed as, you know, for instance, when archaeology really got its start. And, um, you know, obviously everybody knows about Heinrich Schliemann. Well, maybe everybody doesn't know, but he discovered Troy. And then that really set things in motion where a lot of the archaeologists and historians started to realize that, hey, wait a minute. Maybe there's a lot more to these ancient texts than we first understood. You know, and obviously you had different waves of going into different areas and different discoveries that went along with that. Now, we've talked about, for instance, uh, Armenia with the ancient kingdom of Uratu and the, you know, the common misconception that came in when they found the civilization by Sumeria, which they entitled Ur, they in the midst of that, confusion came into the equation where they placed Ur of the Chaldees, for instance, they placed it down there in that region by Sumeria, down into Iraq and all that. You know, and of course, they did not do this on purpose. It was just they were going with what they had, what they thought at the time. You know, and this is why it's really important to keep on top of the archaeological finds, to stay on top of the genetic and archaeological um, genetic work, as well as a lot of even the newer um, linguistic, epigraphical work, even that, so that you can just keep a continual eye on what is being presented as new material within the academic fields, because they have just come light years ahead compared to what has been typically brought into many of the academic, theological, historical circles, and is still being taught from our old textbooks. Now, with that in mind, that's where we have to start really breaking things down here, especially when we start with Daniel 8, verse 1, and start moving forward. Because no matter what, we have to dig deeply into the Persian Empire. Now, this is something I have been doing nonstop for years upon years upon years on end, I have just I've got so much collected material here within my notes that I have stored on varied hard drives all over the place with the work I've done on this over the years. So of course we need to start here with Daniel 8 verse 1 because folks you're going to see something very interesting from an isochronal history repeating itself perspective. So you start here at the beginning of Daniel 8 verse 1 in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar 
the king, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So we can at least stop there for the time being. Now, one of the main things that if you go and look, for instance, in some of the encyclopedia articles within Belshazzar, which is mentioned here, obviously, in the first verse, and then we know on top of it that uh, Daniel 5 is Belshazzar as well. Now, some of these very places you'll look, they'll say, well, we don't know who Belshazzar is, even though that is completely erroneous. It's in left field. That's not true. Nabadonius, who was one of the descendants through the Queen of Babylon, which we've discussed um, in a few previous shows now here, and we have the Bands of Time YouTube channel, where we find out that she was actually an Assyrian. And through her loins were birthed the kings of the Chaldean Empire in Babylon from Nebuchadnezzar on down. Now, Nabadonius was the king over Babylon at that point in time, and he fled over into the Arabian area. I believe it was around Timon at the, off the top of my head. He put Belshazzar in his place to rule Babylon. And when, because you had Darius the Mede, the Horn of the Medes, was ruling at the same time as Cyrus the Great, or Cyrus II as it would be referred to in the historical text, shows up at that time at the ending of what's stated in Daniel 5. You know, the texts go, we've got tons of historical backing now that proves all of this happened just as it states in the book of Daniel. Now, there's something very interesting going on here. Um, to point out first, now, one of the misconceptions that's went on for quite some time is Susa. It was thought for quite some time that that was, basically, that temple was set up there at the time of Darius the Great and obviously ruled forward. Now, what they had thought is that none of that area was inhabited. It was a plain the Persians came in over the Zagros Mountains. They were a bunch of tribal confederations that were mixed up all over the place, and that's where they showed up. But that's not what the archaeology is now showing. It is showing that that whole region was inhabited for quite some time, and it stayed consistent. Um, obviously, you have, which is in the province of Elam, I looked in the vision, and I myself was behind the Ulai Canal. Now, Folks, there's something very interesting that uh, took place in ancient history between Ashurbanipal, the king of what would have been Urartu, Armenia, and the kingdom of Elam. And this is called the Battle of the Ulai River, which is in modern times the Kirkha 
um, Kirkath River, which is when you pull up the map of Sousa and you go in and zoom in, you're going to find that river is sitting there. It's changed course. This is quite complicated because obviously you have all kinds of variables that happen with rivers. Earthquakes can cause them to change course. We've explained this in the work that I've done on Eden as well. But you have this very specific battle that happened earlier in history. Um, it's also known as the Battle of Tiltuba, which in uh, 635 BC was a battle between the evading Assyrians under their king Ashurbanipal and the kingdom of Elam, which was a Babylonian ally. The result was a decisive Assyrian victory to Numan. The king of Elam and his son Temeritu were killed in the battle. And this will go into the set of notes that I'll release here a little bit at a later time because there's some stuff that I want to do before I put this up, basically writing in some explanations as things go through as opposed to just a wall of notes. Now, you'll find out on top of it, um, I came across a PDF that shows the actual script and um, picture that goes along with this. And um, there's one PDF I found that's called Ashurbanipal's Headhunt, an anthropological perspective. Um, this is written by Dominic Bonet. And obviously the king of Assyria at the time, Ashurbanipal, beheaded the king of Elam. But on top of it, as I pointed out as well, you end up finding out that uh, this is one of the kings of Uratu, the region up in modern-day Armenia. Um, to read from this book here, which is out of the Cambridge Ancient History, Volume 3, Part 1, The Prehistory of the Balkans and the Middle East. Um, and you can actually find this book free for uh, on downloads from archive.org. Um, just this little section here in about 640, Rusa, who he was the king over Uratu at the time, made overtures, sent an envoy to Ashurbanipal, but he received an enemy's welcome. The luckless man's tongue was torn out and he was flayed alive. At length in 636, when Dugdami had been defeated at the Silicon Gates and Ashurbanipal had defeated the Elamites at the Battle of Ulai River, Rusa's son, Siduri III, who had resigned jointly with his father and whom Ashurbanipal calls by an Assyrian form of his name, Ishtar Duri, submitted and sent ambassadors to greet the victory at Arbella. Now, folks, Arbella is modern-day Erbil. This is where, for instance, the Battle of Gagamela at the time of Alexander the Great and between Darius III took place. We've done extensive um, pieces on Erbil before in the past that's been in actually a few of our programs that we've done over time here. Um, but if you look into this place, you're just going to be completely amazed. Um, there was a, a Syrian satrapy at the time of the Achaemenid Empire that ruled from there, and they did not have to have any of the Persian satrapies put over it. They allowed them to stay with an Assyrian king, and that goes all the way down through history, even to the time of the birth of Christ and beyond that with the king that we talked about that's referred to in Josephus. Um, there was an Assyrian king at that time ruling through different portions of some of the areas we've brought up many times here now, with especially when you get into Armenia and going into all those. But to move forward, 
grasping his knees in token of submission and greeting him like a son, a father. The envoys are represented in the great reliefs, showing the aftermath of the Uli battle, which Ashurbanipal caused to be carved in the palace of his grandfather, Sennacherib, at Nineveh. One ambassador is bearded, the other is younger and clean-shaven. Both are wearing a cloak-like garment and a version of the Phrygio-Armenian headdress as worn at Persopolis over a century later. Ashurbanipal taunts them with double-dealing, confronts them with Rusa's or Siduri's correspondence with the Elamites, but it seems the Siduri was forgiven since the help of her two was needed in the face of the growing common danger, of course. The, excuse me. Of course, the impression of the unimportance of these last royal defenders of Urtu, for thus far as the role had shrunken, might well be altered or dispelled by future excavations at a later major site such as Kelgover, found only in the late 7th century B.C. on the Aras River. It is, however, a tribute to the strength of tenacity and diplomacy of the Eretians that their kingdom was able to outlast the fall of the Syrian rivals by a quarter of a century. Now, folks, it's important on top of it you take note of something that's happening previously in modern-day Armenia, because obviously we've talked about this Velvet Revolution, this new leader, Pashayin, that has now come to be the prime minister there and is the ruling power, the Old government, he's disbanding. He has started to reform his new government. Now, just a couple of days ago, it came to the forefront that they're already in the midst of major trade talks with Iran. And obviously, the locations that we've just spoken of, Susa, Elam, that's all a modern-day Iran. You know, to point this out as well, the modern term for that name, Iran, actually comes from what was stated by Darius the Great, Arian, Arya. That's where the modern terminology for that name for the country of Iran is from. That is very important in the scheme of everything as far as isochronally speaking, but we'll come back to that at some other point. But this is to give everybody an indication of one isochronal event that happened at the time of Ashurbanipal. Now, we talked about the fact previously in our program about Asher and the Velvet Revolution how it was at Sennacherib when he was worshipping his god, Misrach, that Sennacherib's sons showed up and murdered him and then fled to Uratu, which is ancient Armenia. Now, keep in mind that the Manian Empire, which was in Azerbaijan. Now, we've spoken about this previously, but let me sort of explain this again real quickly. The Manian Empire is not Armenia. It's the people from Azerbaijan that ruled over that empire. They were in alliance with the Assyrians for a vast period of time, even going down to Ashurbanipal. Now, the kings of Uratu many times tried to go in there and set up puppet leaders and bring them into subjection to the Assyrians, or I mean in subjection to being against the Assyrians. And what happened is they had to, obviously the Assyrians would come in, dethrone these kings, and the proper kings would be set back up again. So we see this constant play between these two regions that are continually coming up, no matter how we want to look at this. So this is why we've continually brought these areas up, because they are very important in the context of, for instance, the Medes, for one, 
because you had Medes living up in those regions by Azerbaijan. Later, they obviously had also moved down into what is known as northern Azerbaijan in the country of Iran now. That is made up of the exact genetic grouping that would be sons of Madai, the Medes, which is a son of Japheth. That therefore means it's going to take you into the RYDNA genetic strand. But what else do we have in the mix here? Well, that's where things really start getting broke down even further because inside of Iran, we also have a, it's a 35 uh, marker concentration. It's the highest concentration in Iran is J2. That is a direct descendancy from anybody descended from Shem. This is proven beyond any shadow of a doubt with all of the genetic and archaeogenetic material. That therefore means if we're going to locate where the original root of the Persians came from, we have to look in the line of Shem. And it shows up somewhere that everybody's going to find to be very peculiar. So now before I go into that, I would like Matthew to comment on some things and bring up whatever is on his mind at the moment. Well, Brian, like we stated, you know, we have to get down to the root of the who. Who, what, where, when, why. That's always the first in academia, how it's always taught uh, the five W's, how it's supposed to be trained out, and that's what we're going to have to look for because, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's going to stare you in the face. God is always going to leave you clues. He's always going to tell you what is to come. Now, in doing this, we... I have to talk just a little bit about how important it is because let's just talk about the book of Revelation itself. Consider this, ladies and gentlemen, that no academic institution dares say that the book of Revelation uh, was written before 70 AD because they can't, because if and when they do, they're stating unequivocally… That is prophecy. They can't do that. So they are all exclusively liars, to be sure. Now, you'll take note that the historists, as far as eschatology is concerned, uh, they're mainly called preterists. They say that Revelation is a documentation of the events after 70 AD because they don't want it to be prophecy either. can't be prophecy. So they say it's already all been fulfilled. Even though even a elementary school child that can read the book of Revelation can plainly tell you that um, no, that nowhere even remotely happened. Please bear in mind, people that begin to try to start studying the Bible will do these things. So look it up. Well, when was it written? <laughs> they all say, well, it was, you know… Around this emperor or around that emperor or around that emperor, ladies and gentlemen, you have to come to grips with the simple fact that they're lying to you. That's what they're paid for. That's what they do. But the who, what, where, when, why, we have to come to grips with what did Brian just say? And 95% of what the Bible has to say is very hard to swallow, but it is what you're going to be judged off of. And you can take that to the bank. So, 
Brian just brought up that we're really talking about Shem. That's what the archaeogenetics prove. So saying anything else is a waste of time and is only done so for your confusion. Now, Brian mentioned uh, the textbook earlier. Ladies and gentlemen, surely you all know by now getting a theological degree from academia kin to written blasphemy. Because you will not get your degree unless you answer the test questions the way the test questions are going to be graded. Make no mistakes about it. You have to understand that if the new data contradicts what the textbooks say, it's not going to be taught. It's going to be covered up and buried. It has to be. You have to come to grips with that. You have to realize how bad it actually is because you can't get a theological accredited degree if you have on one of your questions the Bible, the Word of God. If you answer yes, it'll be marked wrong. Do you understand? And if you say that Persia is anywhere other than Iran… You will promptly be fired. You will lose your tenure, and you will never teach in any state, in any country again. Once your tenure has been discredited, you're done, and I mean your life is done. Your future's done. So if you're a professor of geology or history… You will say what that textbook tells you to say, or else. So, <clears throat> with that in mind, we're following the archaeogenetics and the Table of Nations. We have to look there, see what it says. And we have to believe that, because that's what's true, and that's what's coming. Make no mistakes about it. It should have got your attention that, well... Brian said, the Bible said, media and Persia. Well, guess what? He also just said, the same verse, the same breath, you should have been looking for it, what it said in verse 4. Because it wasn't trying to confuse you what it said in verse 4. I mean, I'll read it here, just as a reminder. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. So that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and become great. Ladies and gentlemen, you were just told. This is a beast that's been formed from two princes. You have to swallow it because, well, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. That's what God said, and that's what he meant. Uh, you can plainly look it up in the Greek if you'd like to. It's Theron, wild beast. That's why I had two horns. When we realized that, come to grips with that, he just came right out and told you. He had no problem telling you. We have to realize that this is massively important. And we need to figure out who these people are in order to determine how their princes operate. Because the rubber... 
is going to hit the road in the future. And you need to come to grips, ladies and gentlemen, with, well, a lot of things. It's your job to teach your children about his wonders, about how he will gather you. What's going to happen when the princes fall and invade this planet, exactly like the Hyksos walked right in after the Lord, their God, had obliterated them with the collapse of the Red Sea. So it is massively important that we come to grips with the who, what, where, when, why of this ram with two horns. And whatever Brian is quoting from, you need to study that. Don't go anywhere near anything that claims to be a commentary of the book of Daniel. Because they'll lie straight through their teeth. They'll do it or their books their books will never be published. Not ever. And like I said, once they're done with you, you're done indeed. So you're only going to find lies if you read there. Brian, let's get to it. All right, sorry about that. I just had a bunch of browser stuff go right up over my mute button on Skype. Now, that is the thing is, uh, you know, as I brought up before, and I've talked about this um, on the End Time Tribune this Saturday, and I've talked about this before concerning ancient Elam and its connections to Cyrus, the king of Anshan, which was in Elam. Now, I started considering looking at this from a different direction. Um, I have a book in my possession, which I had to find through PDF, because if you try to track this book down in uh, print form, which is the only way you can get a hold of this, you're talking multiple hundreds of dollars. Um, Luckily, I stumbled into a PDF version of this. It's entitled From Cyrus to Alexander, A History of the Persian Empire, and it's by Pierre Bryant. And he's a Frenchman. And when it comes to uh, archaeology, as Matthew has attested many times before, you want to get to the bottom of something, you go to the French. And unfortunately, a vast majority of their information has never been translated. So luckily, we have this uh, version, which is translated by Peter T. Daniels. And, um, you know, he starts his book out with bringing up all the problems with understanding Persian history, the contradictions, not to even mention, like I brought up before, the archaeological data that is showing a much different picture about the fact that the areas around Susa and Elam had definitely been inhabited for a long stretch of time. It just did not happen that a bunch of Persians showed up and everything there was destroyed and it was a plane. They came over the Zagros. You know, even as he points out in this book, which was written several years ago, that is a completely distorted representation of Susa, of Elam, of this whole region. Now, as I began to look at this, you know, I stated last week on the End Time Tribune, and I brought it up before many times, that Elam and Persia are one and the same. But I had to stop and reconsider that stance. And when I looked at the work in this book on the very topic, I began to wonder about something because he started stating that when you have Cyrus and his forefathers that are all around in the same area, 
you had things going on with marriages between empires. You know, it's a rather common thing. For instance, you can get these in the um, the Armana text makes it very clear. For instance, that you had like Hittite queens being uh, married into the pharaohs lineage and you know several other examples throughout history this is a common practice that's even continued onward into modern history i mean you look at even some of the kingdoms in the balkans you know the uh infamous hungarian austro-hungarian habsburg dynasty for instance they married all the way across the board with different families royal families so this is you know you can see these examples everywhere this is not uncommon it's rather normal but, you know, he points out that they were in this same region of Elam, but at the same time, you know, you have this indication that, to a degree, they came from somewhere else, but at the same time lived at Elam, and that's therefore why they get the title King of Anshan, because, well, technically speaking, they were the King of Anshan of Elam. You know, and I begin to ask myself, maybe we might be looking at something a little bit different here. I need to reconsider the table of nations through the descendants of Shem and look at this again to see if maybe we can lock in on a more appropriate identity for Persia. Now, in this um, rather lengthy uh, 53-page set of notes that I drew up last night and um, sent to Matthew as well, you know, there's one little key statement in here that I sort of highlight right away at the top. That's um, out of one of the articles that you can find online. It states here, as the Aryans migrated to the lands of their neighbors, they did not displace the original inhabitants. When the Persian Aryans eventually settled in, settled the southern Iranian plateau. The area was populated by the Elamites with whom the Persians integrated. An examination of the present linguistic composition of Iran reveals that other non-Indo-Iranian linguistic groups are interspersed among the Persian linguistic groups. So, as I said, last night I sat down, I looked at the Table of Nations again. I kept going through the descendants of Shem, and then I hit something, and I went, this, no. No, 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 no. How did I miss this all this time? And it's one that people is probably going to cause a great deal of, of contention as you realize who I'm talking about. Because let me get this over here to uh, take it over here to Genesis 10 real fast and read where we're looking at because it shocked me that I had not seen this before. Let's see here. Obviously, we start here. I'll just start with the Sons of Shem and read on down. Sons of Shem were Elam and Asher, Arpaxad, which we brought up before, that's Ur of the Chaldees, Lud, Lydia, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hal, and Gether, and Mash. Arpaxad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almodad and Shaleth and Hasmavarath and Jerah and Hadaram and Uzal and Dekla and Obal and Abimel and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlements extended from Mesha as you go towards Safar, 
the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem according to their families and according to their language, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So everybody, just even with that last verse, you can understand why it is that we have to start here. If we're going to understand who these ancient people are, who they become, who they're, why they're important when we look at prophecy, you have to start here. Now, pre-flood, if you go backwards and you look at all the cities that were founded by Cain, you look at Central Asian archaeology especially, coming down into some of these same and different areas I've talked about, once you look at the archaeological data, you're going to realize something very important. Um, There's a video that I brought up on a program on the End Time Tribune that I believe his name is Lord Renfrow. He's been knighted, obviously. And he discusses the new findings as far as the Indo-European grouping of people, which are, you know, obviously are modern-day Europeans, and discoveries that have been made there, which is very, very eye-opening. And there's another theory that comes in from a woman that did extensive work showing different groupings within matriarchs that ruled over these areas. And you begin to look at that information and all the data and archaeological data that she found, you really begin to wonder if you're looking at the pre-flood civilization because what the um, two streams of their work, when it's put together, you find out that you have two different streams in history when these groupings of people were moving through. And that's what's been shown with the archaeology and the genetic data now. And it's really quite a fascinating video, which I'll repost again to my Twitter and to the Facebook page. And I'll even just put it right up on endtimesmutantmedia.com so people can watch it. It is just an excellent, excellent um, lecture that's given by this man. Now, to move forward, uh, we I stopped at a certain spot and I amplified it. I want everybody to take a look at Genesis 10, verse 29. And Ophir and Havilah and Jobab, all these were the sons of Jokden. Now, folks, we've talked about Havilah, and when you break it down to the Persian term, Haryava, is modern-day Herat in Afghanistan. This is how I was able to trace that river into there, and there has been extensive work done now by people that have worked heavily on the locating the geographical locations with the Persian dialect and have locked all these things into the exact same places. Now, everybody, you have to remember that a lot of these folks that have worked on locating Eden before have also taken those texts from the Persians to try to make educated um, guesses as to the location of these rivers. And now that we've had more work done in this area, once again, this is painting a different picture than what was thought previously for, you know, because some of these people are my friends that have made certain locations as Eden. And I don't see that they did anything wrong. That's just, they were going with what they had. There's nothing wrong with that. But to go forward, why did I single out this one? Oh, fear. Well, folks, if you take a look 
at the Hebrew itself, you're going to find something very interesting going on. Now, I just uh, had drawn this up before we got on air, and let me uh, get this a little bit more uh, magnified so I can read this. Now, if you take a look in Daniel 5, you're going to notice a very similar spelling with the word Ufarsin, which, you know, obviously if you go into the definition, it's going to take you to H6357, which is obviously just going to give a portion of that word, which is Peres. But if you look at the actual Hebrew itself, you're going to find out that it's not that different than the word Ophir. Ophir has an additional, in the uh, dictionary, it has an Aleph in front of it, but when you look at the text itself, it's a little bit different. Now, obviously, when you break this off, you end up with par at the end of Ophir. And it's parash. And let me uh, take a look at this real quick. Again, I have to go backwards. Uh, Genesis 10, i got to take that down to the end. Because there's something really interesting that's a part of that word in Ophir when you break it down. Let's see here, verse 29. Okay, where is that exactly? Hold on here, folks. I'm finding the Hebrew word. Okay. You find out that this first word on Ophir is H176, which or Av, which means a desire. And so probably in Proverbs 31, verse 4, hence by the way of or also if. So if you're pointing that root under this word, all of a sudden you get a twofold word together here. I'm going to Matthew jump in and see if he can explain that a little bit better than I am. Clarify your question for me, please. <clears throat> Brian? Well, this word for Ophir, you know, H-I-211 obviously is what it comes up as. Mm-hmm. But the root... Um, at the beginning of the word, is got the Av on it, which is H176, which means uh, right. desire, or hence by the way of, alternative, or also if. So, to desire, correct? Exactly. Let, let me take you back to the Bible, why it says that, okay? Let's just talk about this. Why would the Bible be saying that? Um, well, in ten verses, ladies and gentlemen, it makes it perfectly clear that Ophir is associated with gold. Okay? So that should be key critical into the etymology of the name. Well, just like my name. <laughs> if you take my entire name, my name means the gift of God, of truth spoken, literally what my my name means. That's all three of my names put together. That's what it is. You could also rephrase it to this, speaking the gift of God of truth. That's what my entire name means. So now all of you probably get the point as to why this would be lock, stock, and barrel. I mean it's also key critical here, another 
verse in part and part to this, Brian's original reading and rendering of the lineage of Sham, it tells you another very important part here. Verse 30, and their dwelling was from Misha and goes to Safar, the mount of the east. Ladies and gentlemen, why did he say that? Well, bring up a map. Look, you'll see that there are Himalayas, but there's also a mountain range that stretches south. That is the natural border to what all academia calls Southeast Asia. That's why it was said. It's key critical that you understand what must have been being talked about. Because outside of the necessity for knowing that this prince's border, beyond it is the east. So with that in mind, it was key critical to put the geographical keys that was given to us and the names. The genetic data given to us. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what the Lord your God would do. Of course, that's what he would do. He would take the name and make an extension upon it. Uh, much like we've talked about Asher. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. He is over in Prince of the Assyrians. <laughs> now... Of course, in your English translations, it you have a hard time getting to this in the English. Well, Ophir is nothing like Persia or nothing like uh, Joktan. It's nothing like Uzal. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's because that's in your language. That's not what the Hebrew is stating. This name, beyond any shadow of a doubt, means for desire. Uh, that's what the Bible says ten times here. If you desire gold, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Okay? And they came to Ophir and fetched from thence gold for 120 talents and brought it to King Solomon. Okay? First uh, Kings chapter 10, the ships of Haram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir a very great omug trees and precious stones... Well, we don't have to stay there. Uh, let's go to Job. What does Job say? A place of your gold and the dust and the gold of fear among the stones of the brooks. Let's talk about Psalms. Okay? Psalms 45. The king's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold. From where? From of course, that's how it would be displayed in the Hebrew Making all of us kind of extremely short-sighted. I've said it a billion times. You need to read what the Bible says and just swallow it because that's the way it is. It's not any other way. I'm including myself in that statement. Because Brian just asked me a random question and I was like, well, you already answered it. It's just I couldn't see it until you asked the question. Well, that kind of does what it means. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, if you desire gold, uh, that's where you're going to go. So you better figure out where that is because that's what – I mean, ladies and gentlemen, 
from the very first verse I read. If you need a clue, throughout all of history, there is one person you could ask, King Solomon. Guess where he got his gold from? Now, when we hit the books, okay, can you prove that beyond any shadow of a doubt? Oh, most extensively we can, beyond any shadow of a doubt. Okay? Beyond any shadow of a doubt. Um, let's read this article. Um, Iran opens largest Middle East gold plant, doubling production. Okay? Look to other news. Well, where else could be the eastern extent of this? Well, you need to get a hint because God would put all kinds of clues and there would probably be a major waterway there. Because they'd want to get the mines as close to the borders as possible. That's how you do trade. You do trade on the borders. You do not want foreign entities coming in to collect things. That's why most of the major docks on the planet, most major, major transfer hubs are always at the borders of countries. Because they can still do trade with minimal threat involved. You don't want a major depot in the middle of the country and have a train having to come into the middle of said country to pick up the goods they've bought from you. That's just foolish, and everybody knows it. Well, except Americans, but this is the way it's always been done. So when we go there, has anybody heard of Rico Dick? Well, I would hope so uh, because it is vastly famous for having the world's fifth largest deposit. It's in Pakistan. And guess what? All the gold that comes from, I mean, massive reserves from that mine goes where? Well, it, they would have taken it straight to a riverhead to get it ready for what? Yeah, transports. So with that in mind, I mean, we just use geology coupled with technical data described in the Bible geographically speaking and makes all this a duh issue really does we can look at the mines the deposits the clues that god has left us and we come to this conclusion that the prince of persia extended his domain at least to that river you can bring up a map turn off the countries turn off the the city names and all that garbage just look at the geology, and you'll start laughing. Well, right there's his border, and that's exactly why they would have taken the gold to either that river or the other port there in the Persian Gulf out by the point. One would have been a transfer station west, the other the transfer station east. So with that in mind, I mean we, we're just looking at the Bible, God's holy word for once, and all of us are just believing it. So, you'll take note that that massive mine is to the southwest of Quetta, which Brian has talked about repeatedly here over the past six months. So there's no consternation as to why. You look at the Hebrew and you scratch your head, well, wait a minute, why, is, why does that look like that? Well, it's supposed to. It's, it's really, duh. And Brian and I should have known this uh, before we started doing broadcast. We should have known this first, but God has a sense of humor. He'll tell you when those you need to pass it along to, when they need it, not when you need it. You know, it's just like 
Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus, guess when Joseph got a clue? No miracle was performed. He was just told at the exact moment in time to get up, go, and guess what? The soldiers the soldier showed up in the, in the middle of the night at an empty house. He was at the right place at the right time. So, we all have sell-all moments. There is no way Brian and I combined to have the gray matter required to know everything that come out of God's mouth. That's impossible. It cannot be done. So, like I said, it's kind of frustrating. Brian goes through all this work. I go through all this work. We just have to come to grips with, well, God didn't tell you because, well, there's no purpose in just you knowing. We're waiting for the sheep to get their wool where it's supposed to be. Let me translate that for you. You know, getting your garments white doesn't take 15 minutes. It's a work in progress. But eventually, you're going to have to throw it in the wash. Get everything out that you've put into it, all the different cleaners, all the scrubbing you've done. Get the loose soil out and start again. <laughs> that's that's really how it works. I'm, I'm not lying to you. So we all just had a Salah moment as to why uh, the Bible spelled it the way it spelled it. I, I mean if you could – if you didn't realize that if you just type in Ophir in gold… It comes up in ten verses, and the first one has Solomon in it. He wanted it, and you should naturally assume that, well, if he desired gold, where where was he going to go? I mean it's common knowledge that if you're going to be placing the title as precious on anything, the first thing that comes out of every single person's mouth across all folds of history is gold. Brian, back to you. Well, that is one of the huge, huge key elements to helping with this identification. You know, Matthew referred to the verses where Ophir comes up, and specifically this verse in Job 22, verse 24, or 22:24. Then you shall lay gold on the what? Dust even among the rocks of the torrents of Ophir. Now, folks, when you go through and you look at the list of the satrapies that were controlled by the Achaemenid Empire, you're going to find out that the empire of Gandhara paid in something very specific. Instead of bars or rocks of gold, they paid with dust, with gold dust. And... I brought this documentary up before. For those of you that live in America or any of the other European nations or those of you that have access to Amazon, there is a video series that you can get in American dollars. It's $9.99 for it, and I, I can't advise getting this enough. I've watched this thing probably a good three to four times, and it's entitled Alexander's Lost World. This is a... Uh, Six-part series from photojournalist David Adams, and he explores the footprints of the ancient world today almost entirely erased. Following the course of the Oxus, he takes an extraordinary journey from Greece in the west to the Chinese border in the east along the way, passing through Taliban territory 
and some of the most inhospitable train on the earth. Suspecting that Alexander's conquest may not have been all that it appears. Adam sets off on an amazing quest to separate fact from fiction and reveal what this world really must have really looked like to the eyes of Alexander. And when you go through this uh, series, when you get down to episode five, he specifically narrows in on the story of Jason and the Argonauts and the land of the Golden Fleece. Now, as he points out here, a lot of people have located that in Georgia by the Colchis, but there's a problem with this. They are not a major producer of gold. So as he begins to look further into breaking down this story with Jason and the Argonauts and the Golden Fleece, something hits him that he needs to go to this region, obviously around where you get around Herat, Afghanistan, and into all these other areas, going beat into modern-day Pakistan, through these courses of India. He comes across the people there in the rivers that still to this day are using the very same setup to mine for the gold. And obviously because it's dust, they're using fleece in this filter to collect this gold dust. Well, folks, when you look at that myth, you can only come away with one conclusion. How do you end up with the golden fleece? The only way that's going to happen is if that sheep's fleece is covered with gold dust. You cannot have a golden fleece covered in a big rocks of gold. It just doesn't make any sense. Brian, can I interject here? Go ahead. Well, we need to remind everybody as to why. This is massively important. Be- they do this with the sheep's fleece because it contains a magical element called lanolin. The lanolin protects and preserves it. By the way, if you want to get sunlight in tablet form, you can only get it from one place, sheep's fleece. Did you know that? There is a multitude of reasons of why God calls us the children of light and refers to us as sheep. One of those is the properties of lanolin. That's right. If you want to get vitamin D three, you got to get it from you have to get it from sheep's wool. But they use that lanolin. They would filter the water through it. And by the way, just so you know, the verse that Brian just read pointed out again the port of call is also the border of that prince's kingdom. Job was saying a little bit more than all of us caught, ladies and gentlemen. So this is another major reason why they wanted that port on that river was because that's where you would pan for the gold, and it would come out as dust in vast quantities there. So they did this. For a specific reason, because the lanolin would preserve and protect the gold, so they would use the the sheep's fleece as a filter and then roll it up, and it would literally become a carpet of gold. So it was key critical to understand why they did that. It was because of the lanolin, which is why we're all called, of course, or we're supposed to be children of the light. Now… This was in the Bible thousands of years before these idiots figured out that, well, if you're in extreme north or extreme southern latitudes, 
there's places where you can only get enough vitamin D from the sun, maximum of two months. Guess what you need to take? Vitamin D tablets. Where do you get it? Lana, Lynn from Sheep's Fleece. That's the only place you can get it. So the Lord, he is God, and what comes out of his mouth, that's what's true, irregardless of what everybody else runs around saying. I just needed to interject that to remind – I know that we told everybody that before, but that episode on the Golden Fleece uh, was very important because, once again, you bring up a map, ladies and gentlemen. Look at it. Alexander would not have crossed the Himalayas. He was walking – he walked right from Iran, Pakistan, walked right through to India. What stopped him? Okay, we're talking about borders. That's why I stated sometime in the future Brian and I is going to have to do an episode on the identity of the Prince of India and what that borders is. Because beyond that, as we already stated in that one verse, there Genesis talking about the sons of Shem. Somewhere in the northern peak on the Himalayas that represented that entire Himalayan range, and you cross that. And you're into another territory altogether different that is very important. So, Brian, sorry about that interruption. I just wanted to remind everybody of what we already covered. So, back to you. Well, there is something important we've got to bring up as far as mountain ranges, though. Because the Pamir mountain range, which you're going to find your starter points up in Tajikistan. Oh, boy... This gets real interesting because this ties into stuff as well. And Alexander did start making his way through some of these areas towards the Pamir Mountains. Now, he got up into an area that actually is a borderline to modern-day China. And this is um, the Joaquin people, for instance, live along these certain corridors. That were in there. So when you stretch into this area, you to a degree get some ideas of some of the different places he went. Um, that'll be in obviously for a much more in-depth discussion. But nonetheless, I would remember Tajikistan because I discovered something today in one of the other uh, periodicals that I pick up from the archaeologists and people that are writing in Iran that just brings up something about this area in Tajikistan that is just unbelievable. Um, you know, and I mean, even as I'm looking at this map, I'm just seeing all sorts of interesting little things standing out. For instance, Haryana. Hmm. But nonetheless, to get back on track here, you know, and I mean, this, this kind of boils around to this uh, question of how in the world did I come to this conclusion that the root for the word for pars, for fars, Persia, somehow can trace back into this ancient land of Ophir. Now, at first glance, that gets a little confusing if you just stick to the atypical history books that are not updated with all the new information concerning the new archaeology, the genetics, and everything. Not to mention if you're not spending an extensive amount of time within the studies that are being done by Iranian people into their origins, into the language and all that, you're just going to completely 
kind of run in circles. You know, it's very important to point something out here concerning the ancient end of civilization because they have traced this to the closest descendants right now that are in that area. They call them the Dravidian, and they're also a branch of that J um, genetic line, which also is obviously, like I've stated before, that's going to draw you straight into Shem. Now, I have a book in my possession here as well that I read a couple years ago. Just one moment while I get that. So I had to pull this up on my uh, tablet quick because uh, I didn't download it on a computer quick. Um, this is named The Civilized Demons, the Harappans in the Rig Veda. This is by Malachi J. Shenge. And I found this on Amazon um, for Kindle. So you can go out there and locate this book. But uh, he does a lot of interesting work where he looks at the contrasts between the Zoroastrian texts and with the comparisons with the Rig Veda. And, you know, obviously you have them, they worship the same set of deities, but according to the writings of Zarathustra, the grouping of deities are the enemy deities in the Rig Veda. And he starts drawing some real interesting conclusions together as he starts looking at the archaeological data that has been found in this area with varied inscriptions, he's got photos of these all over in this book. You begin to find something that really starts to rattle your cage. Now, we've talked about the fact before that Ahura Mazda himself is the exact same thing as Asher. If you take and overlay the two different inscriptions or you know, however you find them made in stone you're going to find out no matter how you look at it, it's one and the same thing. And as he begins to look at all these different um, archaeological finds down there, he begins to realize that Asher was in this area. And when you see what he's discovered, you cannot deny this. It's just, it's completely mind-blowing. You know, and this, this author went through a lot of contention to even get this book published because, of course... He brings something forward like this, and everybody's just going completely bonkers, going, you can't say this. But the data's there. Now, I've referred to, there's this infamous carving of the proto-Shiva. And when you look at this carving, you begin to realize he has the same horns that are described in the book of Revelation with the Assyrian, with the false prophet. Of course, when you look at Alexander... They have those same descriptions of him as well. They've got lore in certain areas that he had horns in Turkey. They still retain a story to this day that the barber went to cut his hair and they found horns there. And Alexander, you know, essentially banished the guy not to say anything and then was thrown down, down into some well and he stated it. Somebody heard it and started getting passed around. Now, this is a common thing and many of the myths concerning. Alexander the Great, and you can even see this in the helmet that he wore. And I've I've posted a picture on that quite some time back that you can find on the endtimetribunemedia.com as well that shows this. So, you know, you have all these really interesting correlations, but I've stated this before on air, that that proto-Shiva, that's the Assyrian, okay? And I stated that because of these other findings down in the end of civilization, and when you realize that they found to the 
archaeogenetics now that going down along that Indus Valley civilization is this constant stream within the Semitic bloodlines, all of a sudden the whole picture starts coming together. Now, how in the world did we get the Persians down this far in Ophir? That's where things start getting real interesting. Now, you'll take note that uh, from, for instance, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, where it brings up Ophir, there's a little section in here where it's been discussed that it's possibly in India because, you know, Josephus, for one, brings up the Coptic word Sophir, and he relates that to Ophir to being a place in India. Now, according to ancient geography, that would be correct. According to modern geography, since the renaming of that nation, that would be Pakistan. And what they bring up in this article is a closer identification is sought with Abhira, a people dwelling at the mouth of the Indus, Sapara, an ancient city on the west coast of India near the modern Goa, is also suggested. Again, according to Wildman, the name denotes a vague extension eastward, perhaps as far as China. But take note of this first part, Abhira. Um, Abhira or Abhira means shepherds. And I have this written on top of it. This is from the Journal of the Royal Geographical Society, Volume 12 by the Royal Geographical Society, Great Britain, on page 114. You know, and there is another book that I had to, on top of it, use to actually get this location, according to the writings of Ptolemy, where this Abira was. Because if you look in certain areas, they're not going to send you to the proper place. So it took me a little while to locate where this Abahira actually was. But take note again, uh, ladies and gentlemen, about the fact that I stated Abira or Abhira means shepherds. What does it say in Isaiah 44, verse 28? He says to Cyrus, you are my shepherd, and he shall complete all my pleasure, even for me to say to Jerusalem, you are built, and to the temple you are founded. All of a sudden, you have the same thing lining up. At first glance, once again, everybody's probably asking, well, okay, this is something completely new that I've never heard. Today, I uh, decided to look through a few of my older uh, books that I've picked up over time here. And this is one of those uh, expensive periodicals that I've discussed before that is entitled The Birth of the Persian Empire, Volume 1, The Idea of Iran. Now, in this uh, book, in the second chapter, it discusses all of the different names of these places and these rivers associated with the writings of Zarathustra of being the original Aryan or Iranian, obviously, homeland. Now, he brings up something real interesting uh, here. But in the last decades, Harada Noli, most elaborately in 1980, has brilliantly argued for a scheme that seemed, pushes the limit definitely outside the boundaries of Iran and substantially into Pakistan. William Volsang, and there's obviously there's art, arguments going on about this. But what really stands out as I began to go through this because I couldn't even believe it. I opened the book up today and it was sitting right there. I had not even gone 
further into this specific chapter. I know I jumped all over the place looking at different, because it's a grouping collection of articles written by different authors that produce these periodicals. And when you begin to look at this, all of a sudden, in broad daylight, all of the different places that we named when I did that program with Matthew on the Bands of Time about Eden, all the same information is sitting here in this book. Now, if I had only noticed this before I did that work, but hey, that's the way things work. I wasn't supposed to see it till now. And once again, he goes through here and he points out Harat, Haryava. He brings up the Laura River with the Pashan Basin, which I just posted up on the End Time Tribune Media as the last uh, piece that I put up because I found all that previously when we did that work, but I had to track it down again. So I put all of that up there. Yes, to this day, that is still called the, the Pishan River Basin. And it's tied into the very specific river on top of it that I listed in here. So as you begin to go through this work that was done by this author here, um, let me go backwards here and get his name. This was uh, written by Franz Grenet. Um, once again, we're back to France. Ecole Padique, Hots, Etudes, Paris. And Folks, he goes in and he lists all of these exact same places. Now, what gets interesting is he brings up when you start with the infamous homeland of where the people started as before they spread out, that's where you get into that term, Arianem Vaja. And now this river on top of it, well, this goes to the Aryan Rapids of the good river, Daya. And he's got a a description here, red snake or dragon, demonstrated winter, which lasts 10 months. And that's why I brought up Tajikistan, up in the Pamir Mountains. Now, there's been a lot of work that has pointed towards this direction before. And what he's pointing out here is that is the start of where they started before they started spreading out and moving down lower into these regions of modern-day Pakistan and Afghanistan was up there by the Pamir Mountains in Tajikistan. So he goes on to list all the rest of these varied areas and rivers, and then he trusts them out on a map. And folks, like I stated before, when you begin to look at all this and you go back and look at the work that we had done on Eden previously, you're going to realize that you're dealing with all of the exact same places taken directly from the ancient Persian tongues. And this is where we go in and we begin to look again at the Sabira. Because when you pull this up, you know, it's you find out for one that you did have these groupings of the J2 down in this area from that same bloodline of Shem. When you look at the Indus River, obviously they had to have a riverway to bring this down to a port of call. You get down to where this location is, which I believe off the top of my head here is the Hob River. Yes, it's known as the Hob River um, is what it's named to now. It's a river in Pakistan. It's located at 24 degrees, 53, 28 north and 664205 east and forms a bounty a boundary to uh, the city of Karachi, Pakistan, and has an elevation of seven meters. Okay, as we go on, 
It was known in the past as the Erebus River, which obviously, folks, we just brought up that name, or the Caiaphas River. Alexander the Great visited the river in autumn of 325, as did his fleet under Nericos. Once again, Abir, we have the same thing, which they have translated, some of them in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, going back further. There's other texts that also bring this up. I believe even Jesenius brings this into question as well within his uh, lexicon, brings up Abir as well. All of a sudden, now we have a place. And that's when you begin to look at the extent of these, uh, you know, what they refer to as the Akhamenan history. And, I mean, I've got several articles from a specific website where they go through and trace this. And you find out that even tracing it through the ancient texts and all that, you find out that the Persians were definitely, indeed, down throughout these areas in Afghanistan, going in over to Pakistan, and even when you go back in and look at the Akhamenid Empire and you pull up the map, you see that they still had control over those areas after, like I brought up previously, when the Persians showed up at Alam and intermingled with those people. So before I had stated that Elam was actually the Persians, well, I have to correct myself. I made a mistake and discovered this in the meantime. So we're looking at the ancient Persians here, and we can see in broad daylight in ancient times they were there. When you're able to take these ancient texts that were written by Zarathustra, which they're dating to between the 6th century B.C. and 500, you know, the 5th, in that region, there's a lot of uh, scholars that are fairly convinced that he was alive at the time of Darius the Great, and he was kind of behind the scene, causing all sorts of trouble. Because one thing that a lot of scholars have taken note of is at the time of Cyrus the Great, not once is the god Ahura Mazda mentioned. This does not come along until Darius the Great kills off the bloodlines of Cyrus II and seizes that throne. And once again, we did this in the video on the bands of time called A Kingdom Divided Against Itself. This consensus with scholars, they fought about this nonstop, and yet a lot of these, even in the periodicals that I've mentioned here, they've even brought up the exact same thing. You cannot escape the fact that Darius the Great usurped that throne. And I've even got a book here, I believe it's called Persian Fire, where the guy just subtly goes in within a couple of pages and points out, look, folks, she, this is in broad daylight. This is what happened. He seized that throne, killed off Cyrus's bloodline, and ended it. And that's where when we go into the Bison inscriptions, we get a lot of these same geographical locations being listed that are being listed through the text of Zarathustra, which obviously if we go into some of the Avesta texts, you have some of them dating back to BC, but a vast majority of these texts as well, obviously were written trying to pull from some of the script in AD, I, somewhere in the Middle Ages, I believe, because you know obviously you've got the myths of the Shanama and all kinds of other uh, buried things that tie in with their lore within the Persian. So this sort of changes everything. It sort of gives us more of an indication and an understanding of the empire of Persia, the Achaemenid Empire, 
But even if we take this into modern times and look at the events that are happening as we speak, as we look at this feared Shiite crescent, which is being built, going into even Iraq right now, where the Shiite majority is starting to run the show, I haven't seen what happened with the election here, but that does tie in. Um, there's a, one of them fiery clerics, they call him, was actually in the lead position the last I looked on that election. And it was just causing a great deal of contention. And where I brought up Erbil before, which is Arbella, Adiabene, this is where the Battle of Gagamilla, um, that infamous second major battle between the Persians and Alexander the Great, it was started just right around this area. Um, there's another set of documentaries. People, if you can find it, go out and look for Michael Woods. Um, set of documentaries on Alexander the Great as well, because he does a lot of excellent work. And I even picked up his... Uh, book which he after a second time of going out to these regions he just wrote another book to go along with those documentaries because he went in and found a lot more details and there's stuff in there that is just absolutely incredible that i'll be pulling bits and pieces from as we go forward in this series um so either grab the book find the documentaries whichever one you want to do for those of you that have access to that stuff um, I'm going to take a breather and let Matthew speak. We're rolling down to 15 minutes. Well, that's where the Lord our God gives us the points of interest to watch. We can put this together, ladies and gentlemen. This is obviously a two-pronged attack. Do you look into the news? Who are the Israeli leaders? Is saying the is the major contention point the Prince of Persia. Yet, at the same time, we have major political upheaval right where Israel gets its oil, which is Azerbaijan, uh, runs right through Armenia, of course into Turkey, because everybody gets uh, their oil from those ports of calls in Europe from Turkey. So, it would seem that the prince of Assyria is working on pinching off… The beautiful land's energy supply, and the Prince of Persia is offering the cover fire, the distraction, the military engagement. When you put these two things together, now the news makes sense. Now things are starting to come into stark clarity. Everything going on in Pakistan right now between them and the country of India… Right there with the Indus River Valley being the separation point. It comes from where? The Himalayas. The northern point there is what Brian already mentioned, Tajikistan. Just bring up a geographical map and look at it. You can plainly see what you're looking at and why Alexander would have stopped there. We look at the mineral deposits and see that much gold is in fact flowing from Persia. Everything we actually needed to see, God had already told us about. So we need to watch these areas. They're going to explode. We've already had major contention in Pakistan between them and India. Already. Something's going on between the prince of Persia and the prince of India, I don't know what else to call him. 
But he would exercise dominion all the way to, uh, well, that mountain range there. It's by Burma. It's by Manipur. Uh, Nagaland. That mountain range right there would be his eastern border. So, ladies and gentlemen, keep your eye on the game. These princes are moving pieces into place in order to do a major play across the globe. And there's going to be nothing Mundus Novus can do about it. There's going to be nothing the New World can do about it. You know, people are already tired of it. I mean, reminds me just in uh, Papua New Guinea, the gold mine there. Of course, operated from where? Who owns it? Let's see here. I believe the place that owns that is in Iowa. They got busted because the UN finally had to step in because their security forces was gang raping all the women. Yeah, that was Americans. So what do you think is happening at the other places? The same thing, ladies and gentlemen. We don't use armies. We use security forces. They're called mercenaries. Everybody everywhere in the Middle East is absolutely tired of it. They are tired of it. They've had enough. Well, I think it's important to take note of the fact, too, of Quds Force. Because Quds Force, a.k.a. Jerusalem Force, the Iranian arm of the Revolutionary Guard, is made up of mercenaries as well, folks. But you need to take careful note of where those mercenaries are coming for. Because when you overlay, as I have brought up on the End Time Tribune uh, Saturday, I haven't had time to look at it. But last night, when we looked at that map of the Achaemenid Empire, and you look at that list of where all these mercenaries are coming from, from that Haaretz article that was just published last week about Quds Force, folks, it's one and the same thing. Now, something else I have to point out here. Now, I've talked in the past about this set of three cycles that is overlaid on this 120-year time frame, starting from 1899 and rolling forward, as you can see, these three sets of these isochronal repetitions happening over the course of this set of time. For instance, one of those repetitions, which is very clear-cut as far as the third rider is concerned, was in 1929 at the time of the Great Depression. The starting point is 1899. And as you keep rolling forward on these timelines, you keep finding these patterns. Now, when we go to the second rotation, we end up, at the end with the fourth rider in this rotation being on 1979. Now, everybody, you need to remember, I brought this up before. 2,300 years from the death of Alexander the Great is 1979. That year began what? The Russian-Afghanistan War, the Iranian Revolution, and there's all kinds of other events that broke out as well at that exact same time. Now, as we progress forward, what is constantly, constantly in the news? Afghanistan and Pakistan. Ever since the events of September 11th, and America went in there going after al-Qaeda, well, they're still there to this day. Eric Prince, at the beginning of the year, last, or it was the beginning of last year, came forward with a proposal to Trump and the rest of this administration 
to send his mercenary groups in there as opposed to putting American forces in there. And he gave a great big list right from the description of Eden in the Bible for all the resources that they could get there. He read literally from the verses that we brought up concerning the Garden of Eden and the program we did. And folks, I've put that information out there before what he stated. You go back and look at it. It's just going to blow your mind. And that's exactly a lot of this has to do with those resources. It has to do with the Caspian Sea oil that is all throughout those different areas along the Caspian Sea, Azerbaijan being Baku for one. Now, there were dealings going on with America prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, where already American businessmen were going out there trying to solidify deals. The stuff kept rolling forward and was even, you know, as Bob Bear, the uh, ex-CIA agent who was in the field, points out that the Caspian oil basin and surrounding areas around Baku and all of this have very large ties and connections to the events that happened on September 11th. And I'm not going down a conspiratorial road here. I'm just bringing up some of the major connecting factors that even where you bring in and look at the um, Chechen wars that were happening, for instance, with the Soviet Union, it was reported there on the ground that Mujahideen showed up, which is the same group that was used to fight against Russia during the Afghanistan war. Well, they showed up in the Chechen region, shot down a chopper, and they used the same Stinger missiles that were given to them by the Americans to bring down that chopper. So this is not coincidence that you have all these groups suddenly show up there in the midst of what's happening in the Chechen war and other wars in the Caucasus region. Now, it's either they were sent there by some intelligence group or they just decided to go there on their own. You know, I've looked at a lot of information on this and there's a possibility that our CIA may have been involved, maybe not. I don't know that that's exactly overly relevant at this point. The point is, is all of this area has connected into all of these events. And this all keeps playing out in real time. Now, everybody, I want you to take note of 2 Kings 17, verse 6. Because we're going to talk here again about Azerbaijan and Armenia. If you get the uh, Kilian DeLeach commentary, um, for you, those of you that have eSword, you can get that commentary on there real easily. Plus, there's spots where you can look it up online. But if you go into 2 Kings 17, verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the city of the Medes. Now, Kaylee DeLeach go on to point out here that when you look at Haber, Kabar, partway down in this he brings up that you're going to end up around Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, according to Ptolemy, uh, verse 1-1, on the boundary of Assyria and Media and the river Kabar called by Yakut in the, I don't know how to say that, so I'm not going to, Kabar, Chasni, is distinguished from the Mesopotamian Chabors and Kibar. And it goes on to point out here the land of Zazun, Zawan, the land between the mountains of Armenia and Azerbaijan, Durbakur, and Mosul. So folks, this is a region that keeps 
coming up over and over and over again in history, specifically even in Bible history. We have this repetition of these events that just keep playing out around all of these different regions. Now when we start breaking down the ancient geography and we start getting to the bottom of the table of nations, we start looking in these places, combining that with all the archaeology, the genetics, everything. This picture has been completely, completely clarified now. And yes, as Matthew pointed out in the academic realms, you can't even look at the kings of the East, folks. I'd really like to know why. You know, they uh, most of these texts that you can now even get freely through Google Books because people sort of decided, well, all these books that were stored away, locked away in these uh, archives, they decided to start basically scanning all of them and making them freely available online. You would not believe some of this material that was written in the 1800s that they nailed all of these different groups of people down to exactly where they were supposed to be. And it is completely lining up with all of the archaeological data now. And it's just unbelievable that they locked this stuff away. These were texts that were being taught in the academic realm. This stuff was known in the 1800s. And all of a sudden, boom, you get to that 1899 mark going to 1900. They suddenly got rid of all these texts. But we've now have a location and we now understand in the table of nations when you look at that word connected with Ophir, when you break down certain parts of that word, you're going to find that word all over the place with mentions to Persia and many places. And there's even another interesting one that I found that breaks down into this, which which is uh, parash, which means horse, steed, war horse, or horseman. They always talk about this in the Aryans, so the horses. But with that said, thanks for joining us. God bless. We may have to continue on this. Matthew, have we got anything in here on your time yet? Yeah, I I have to go straight away. So um, let me uh, bow out. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, God bless, God speed, and keep your eye on the word. Keep your eye on the word. All right. Bye-bye, Bri. All right. Talk to you later, and thanks for joining us, folks. We're going to call this show done for the time. We may go back into more details on this. Thanks for joining us. God bless. <laughs>